Hello everyone and welcome to the Sensing the Wild podcast. This is our fourth episode in our series of podcasts which features Errington Wood in Redcar in the northeast of England. This podcast is supported by Going for Independence, a community interest company which works with in the area with people with sight loss and in partnership with the Tees Valley Wildlife Trust volunteers supported by the Heritage Lottery Fund. We aim to keep our listeners engaged with nature whilst they are at home and today I will introduce you to Keith who is a volunteer for the Trust. Keith is a retired countryside ranger and he is actively engaged with other Trust volunteers to make changes in the woodland, making the pathways accessible and planting broadleaf native trees to improve the habitat for wildlife. We're all going on a walk with Keith as he shares his experience and knowledge about the woods. Well, this is Errington Woods mm. and uh, it's sort of half a mile wide by a mile and a quarter long. Yeah. And it's not a natural woodland. It was planted by the Errington family. But yeah. what they wanted was conifer trees. Mm-hmm. So they planted conifer trees on this bare hillside that they had at that time. I see. Was uh, it part of their gardens of their, their stately home? Mm. Well, it, yeah. The, 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 there's not a lot written in parish of history about the Errington family. They seem to just disappear about you know in the 1700s i think they obviously owned this hillside because of the steep incline they yeah. couldn't do a lot with it right. so in about the 17 mid 1700s mm. uh, people were going on the grand tour bringing yeah. specimen trees back to their stately homes yeah I understand and some that. of these conifers were some of the specimen trees mm. they brought back uh, and it didn't take them long to look at something like the sitka spruce mm. tree and kind of think well that's growing three times quicker than our native broadleaf trees. Why don't we plant these as a crop mm-hmm. instead of our broadleaf trees, which mm. are slow-growing things? Mm. So that was the trend at the time. Mm. And I think the Errington family kind of took on a bit of that. So they said, we've got this hillside we're not doing a lot with. Why don't we put this commercial crop in of conifer mm-hmm. trees? Mm-hmm. And that was the beginning of commercial conifer planting in this, this area. Arguably, this is the oldest conifer plantation yeah. in the northeast yeah. of England but anyway yeah and would they use the the pine trees would they use that in the iron ore industry they would then? have used a lot for pit props and things right. but I think they were planting it initially just as a crop without really any thought mm. of harvesting at, at the time yeah. in the 1850s the, the ironstone mine started in this woodland mm-hmm. uh, and they would have been using cutting the conifers and using them as pit props Thank you for that, Keith. There's some research for you. The Errington family. Where did they go to or what happened to them? I want to say thank you to them for planting this hillside with conifers because if that had not happened, we may have lost the woodland to the developments of other kinds. And talking about developments of other kinds, we met Jeff. He's a regular walker in the woods and he has a tale to tell about the end of his work in life. I mean, you, how long were you at British Steel for? 17 years. Wow. 17 years, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's because, well, I did work the potash underground for quite a while uh, and I did like the organisation there. Mm. ICI were involved in it mm. and most, most of the people on the night shift off. Because it was, they finished at mid, 
night shift started at midnight, and all the miners go to the pub. And then they were only come out of the pub and go to work and sort yeah. of go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so often there were, you know, about 30% shortfall of the night shift. Mm. Well, I never missed a shift. I was a goody goody boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I wasn't a miner, I was a mechanic. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what were you doing at British Steel? British Steel, I went there as a um, maintenance man, mechanic. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and finished up as a middle manager. Oh, right. <laughs> because the, the, the way I got promoted to um, uh, what they call charge on and then oh, foreman. Yeah. yeah. And as I got made up, they did away with these jobs. Mm. And then there was the become an engineer, and I moved up to engineer. And then they did away with charge hands, foreman, and engineers, and had team leaders, oh, which yeah. is the modern <laughs> thing. Absolutely bloody crazy the way they run. <laughs> one thing, I don't wonder they shut. No. <laughs> and, and they made me redundant before they wanted to go. Oh. But I couldn't refuse the offer. There no. was the last payment from the EEC. Yeah. And I got a lot of money put yeah. into my pension. Yeah, yeah. So I took it. And oh, went, good lad. And then they had to shut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because all the people that knew what they were doing <laughs> got out of it. <laughs> well, they were pushed out. Yeah, they yeah. were told to cut the numbers, cut the numbers. Yeah. And if you're in the position of boss, yeah. how do you do that? Who do you pick? I know, it's difficult. Pick the it? ones you like. Or yeah. the ones you have to reapply no for your own job, you, that's what they do. <laughs> if, you start, if you start picking the ones that you don't like, yeah. the unions have a go at you. Yeah. So we'll yeah. pick the oldest. Yeah. yeah. So I was being interviewed regularly. Aww. Uh, you are 58, 59 now. Yeah. Um, you know, do you want to take the redundancy? Yeah. It'd be better for you, it'd be better for us. <laughs> how old are you now? 84. Wow. So how you far still... are you walking today? Oh, not far. Not probably far. Six miles. But today's walk... Six miles. Today's walk incorporates coming from Mask up the top of the hill, ah, body yeah. which is all good for me. It's all good for yeah. you, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Hey, good luck. Well, thanks, Jeff. Many of us can identify with going to the pub, a tradition of mine workers over centuries. In UMass, there are some plaques on walls relating to pub life and mining. The first one reads, The strict anti-drinking laws of the local mine owners led to many miners turning their back rooms into bars known as shebeens. In 1887, the local policeman was injured raiding the shebeen on his street. He was forced to retire, becoming the town's postman. (laughs) And the second one... Um, In the summer of 1865, a local miner was caught returning from the first pub to be built in the area. He was threatened with the sack for breaking company rules, which forbade drinking while employed by the mine company. The pub situated between Musk and New Musk was never given a licence. Anyway, let's get on with our walk with Keith now. So this is a little area where we're standing now in a coop fell. So we felled a lot of the conifer trees in here. You can see just on the outside that the original conifers are still here. But this was just like a clear fell, coop fell area. And we replanted with native broadleaf trees. And you can see we've got oaks. And they'll be 30-year-old now because yeah. I planted them wow. quite a while ago with students. From yeah, you've been around a long time, I have haven't been you, around, <laughs> Longer than I want to think about, yeah. 
so these were planted with the help of uh, students from prior Purse Glove College, and that okay. would be sort of in the 80s really? sometime. Yeah, so, they, they, you know, they, they're coming through. Uh, native broadleaf trees are better for wildlife, and that's what mm. we're going for rather yeah. than a commercial crop. So this is where we are now in one of the Coop Feld areas, mm. and you can see above us we've got the canopy. The other thing I should say is that conifers, most conifers are evergreen. Right. So when the can when you get a dense canopy, canopy of conifers, they just cast a heavy shade and nothing grows. Broadleaf trees, because they're native to this country, we go through the autumn fall so they lose their leaves all the leaves get recycled and, and improve the nutrients in the ground uh, and in the springtime the sunlight can get through to the to the woodland floor and so you get all the woodland plants oh, going like in blue, and that's what you, you want bluebells? we get bluebells up what, here we get native bluebells native bluebells yeah higher up yeah not at this time of the year but yeah. yes we do in the, in the springtime yeah. um so that's what we're about so we're getting slowly just opening up and thinning out conifers and letting what we call natural regeneration take its course mm. uh, and these native broadleaf trees are now dropping seeds and right. you know it's all yeah. happening all yeah. the yeah, I'm sure our listeners would really like to know what Coop Feld areas mean so Keith's going to try and explain that <laughs> right. so can you imagine a thick dense woodland where the trees are only about two metres apart mm -hmm. and you've got this evergreen canopy of, mm -hmm. of needles because you've mm. got the conifer trees and this is evergreen so even in the summertime the sun cannot penetrate past that right. past the evergreen canopy so what we do is just choose small areas within the woodland and we're kind of just knocking holes within that woodland so where we're standing now we've got a circumference of maybe 200 metres, 300 yeah. metres that we've just, we in the 80s we initially felled everything in this circumference here so there was nothing. Nothing here? Nothing here at all mm. and then we replanted with native broadleaf trees. These are oaks, ash, yeah. uh, hazel, yeah. beech in some areas yeah. um, and, th and that's all it is and then and after that you just give it time, you just got to wait, wait a wait, long time. Wait yeah. time and even out. now yeah. we're starting to thin out some of these native broadleaf trees because we planted them too close together initially oh, and they're yeah. not growing the right shape so to give them right. a bit of space to move uh we'd we be uh, you know yeah. i don't like doing it but i, I think can you've justify got sycamore it. in here as well sycamore, and sycamore is coming on its own sycamore is right. quite a dominant tree and yeah. arguably that's not a native broadleaf tree no no that's right true. and that was introduced a lot later maybe i should talk about what is native how do we describe a native exactly, tree and what is I a non-native and, well, orcs, obviously. Yeah, but a, a native tree, here. going way back in time, don't want to bore too many people with this, mm. but going way back in time, Britain was attached to the rest of Europe mm. with a land bridge mm. about 10,000 years ago. Then the Ice Age came along, and when the ice started melting, there was vast quantities of water started filling up the North Sea. Eventually, the land bridge broke and we became an island. And... The experts know exactly what trees colonised this area on their own, came mm -hmm. in here under their own steam with, you know, being blown in by the wind, yeah. carried in by birds. And yeah. Once the land bridge broke, nothing else could get into Britain. So experts have taken core samples out of the ground mm. and what they're identifying is the pollen grains that's, that's in the peat layers that, that's uh, in the ground. Mm. And they can identify the pollen from particular trees so mm -hmm. they know exactly prior you know 10,000 years ago yeah. it was just sort of 
rough tundra because mm -hmm. the ice had just moved away. Mm -hmm. And then maybe about 9,000 years ago, the first trees were getting established. Right. Uh, and oh. trees were beginning to grow, so it would be things like willow and birch to start with. As the ice retreated and the yeah. ground became available, mm. willow and birch were starting to colonise these areas, and then later on with their leaf fall, the, mm. the, the other native mm. trees started following them, mm -hmm. and then eventually Britain became this vast woodland. Yeah, yeah. Anything that came in after that was a non-native tree. We know that they've been brought in right. by... The Romans brought stuff in, the yes, Victorians of course, the introduced yes. it, you know, and it all yeah. kind of came in from Yeah, there, really. OK. Lost a lot of sand at Redcar and it revealed a wonderful ancient forest going back 10,000 years. And I went down there to have a look at it, but I didn't know what kind of trees there were, so I'm just asking Keith if he knows anything about it. Well, they'll have been our native trees, which are oak, ash, mm -hmm. there's hazel, birch down mm. there. I even I because I went down to have a look and mm. I found an acorn in amongst I was poking about yeah but, yeah yeah uh, amazing yeah and all of that wow. have been flooded when the when the sea levels rose yes through the yeah, ice melting to the yeah. north so that goes way back and they yeah. are preserved in the peat in, layers, in the peat so layer yeah. fascinating it wasn't is, it? it yeah it was brilliant I think it was the beast from the east that blew all the sand yeah it out, was it was yeah we just come along through the woodland um, here come to a part of the woodland that's quite interesting it's actually old industrial industrial works and it's the sidings of the railway which now features the pond and uh, Keith's going to explain a little bit about it. Yeah this was it in the 1850s sort of ironstone was um, discovered in this area it was a big Klondike everybody rushed here to get a piece of the action uh, and here in Errington Woods it was called the Upleatham Mine because it went right through to, to up the, the other side of the hill where Upleatham village is. Um, and it was the largest ironstone mine of its type in, in the world in its in its heyday. Eston Hills soon superseded that. But uh, what we're looking at now is what we call Newt Pond here. Uh, and it's part of the ironstone mine in sidings where the railway went in and into the mine to the left of us here. Uh, but it's flooded over the years and now we've got newts and uh, dragonflies and all kinds of things in, in here. So it's an interesting area. We've enhanced it over the years. Yeah done some planting. We're looking into the pond now. It's looking murky because we've had quite a lot of rain, as you know, over the last week. It's not conducive for fish. For fish, but frog spawn. Frog, frog spawn, toad spawn in the yeah. springtime, yeah. Uh, and obviously a lot of newts and, and dragonflies we yeah. get in there, yeah. which is nice. And the damp conditions are conducive to the frogs, isn't it, really? Oh, yeah. And the newts. But they do um, lay their eggs, don't they, on reed bed? The dragonflies have a funny... Yeah, the, the, the adults lay eggs mm. in the water and then mm. the eggs they hatch out mm. into nymphs and the nymphs can live about four years mm. as, a, as a little water okay. beetle type thing in the water. Right. And then after four years, they'll climb out onto the, the reeds, mm. come out of the water mm -hmm. and they'll, they'll metamorphose into a... Into, into a, a lovely dragonfly. dragonfly. Yeah, and start breathing air. Yeah. And it's, you know, yeah. quite a miracle. I've really, seen quite a lot of blue ones of late. They're quite pretty. Yeah, yeah, we get yeah, some... like turquoise blue. The, the ones we get here are southern hawkers. They're oh, like okay. big yellow stripey things. Oh, are like they? Big ones, you know, like flying yeah. cigars, some of them. Oh, wow. things. Yeah.
we're in the area now in Errington Woods and Keith's just been explaining about the shale heaps which was debris from the mining and apparently the miners actually planted pine trees into the shale so it looked a little bit more attractive um, and now obviously we've got a covering of topsoil on it but the trees actually are securing the shale because obviously with a lot of rain you can get like landslips so it just creates interest in the wood because all of a sudden you get these hills that just appear from nowhere and as I say they are the shale hills so, but great with a cover of snow on when the, the kids are doing the sledging in the winter I'm sure. We've introduced hazel into the woodland. Now, hazel will never grow to be a, a huge tree and it always adds what we call the shrub layer in a, in a woodland and over the years it's been really useful for people going you know way back to the Bronze Age because you can cut hazel at the bottom and it will regenerate in long strands. So yeah. you get hazel rods from I that. I see. And, and that's been useful building material. Yeah, uh, I've seen it woven into hedges. That's right. Uh, wattle and daub houses were made that's with hazel. That's right, the wood, yes. They would have been um, used yeah. for that. Yeah, and you can coppice it. You can coppice it every seven years or so it comes back. Mm. It's a very it's sustainable... Very, you, you get catkins, don't you, on hazel? You, you do, and they come, the come through in the, in the very early days. So the hazel trees... Yeah, and they, they are native, they are, they are native, native trees. They're a lovely tree, they get the catkins in the springtime before the leaves appear because their catkins are pollinated by the wind rather than yeah. the uh, no, insects. They, they don't have to, they're both male and female, aren't they, the uh, hazel trees? Yeah, and yeah. actually they pollinate themselves through the wind, yeah. So the catkins come out very early before the other trees get their leaves right. to inhibit the wind. Yeah. And actually the nuts in the autumn are quite tasty, aren't they, hazelnuts? Oh, absolutely, oh, so, so they're good. <laughs> Uh, good for a lot of things, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the hazelnut, if you can imagine, if you just feel the tip of your finger, sort of like a roundy oval shape, that's about the size of a hazelnut. And then when they grow on the branch, they look like they've got little pixie hats on, so they've got like a little finial on the top, so they're like, which encompasses the the hazelnut. And the group, they grow in groups of about three or four, mm -hmm. don't they? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you can harvest those, pick them and dry yeah. them, and then you've got them ready for Christmas to yeah. crack open. Yeah. And then down in Kent, they grow really prolifically in the, the Kentish cobs. Oh, right, They're okay. The, the big hazelnuts. We, we int we've introduced hazel into this woodland because it wasn't here because of all the conifers initially. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's doing all right. Yeah. I should say that this woodland is on, on the hillside and it's a north-facing woodland, so it doesn't get a lot of light, so light is an issue with what we've been doing yeah, here. I can understand that. Um, just looking at it here, the hazel, it grows quite randomly, as I say. Um, Keith mentioned about the sticks, but the leaves on the bottom of the bush are smaller than those at the top, so obviously the ones at the top are trying to get as much light as possible, aren't they? Mm. We're filling the, the systems yeah. of giving yeah. out and taking in carbon dioxide, That's right. cleaning the air. Got you it. do, you do feel healthier in a woodland. Do. I'm feeling very damp today though, Keith. It's like it's like the typical saltburn yes. red car sea fret. It and it's, um, it's not cold, it's just mm -hmm. dank and damp. It does nothing for your hair, believe you me. <laughs> Yeah, we're just, just commenting that there's there's not a lot of birdsong in the woodland and it, it is August and, and it's after, the breeding season's finished now and the, the parents are worn out because they've been feeding their youngsters and rearing youngsters. Some of them have had two and three clutches of, of youngsters this, this year so far. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and they go through a molt. The adults start molting and the feathers are worn out so they, they get rid of them uh, and they can't fly very well so they go very secretive and they go very skulky and they just start, you know, they're, mm. they're not visible. If yeah. you came in here in the springtime, you know, you would hear all the birds, willow warblers and chiff-chaffs and all kinds. With it being but such mi mixed habitat, you've got open areas here. We're looking at an open area with a nice bench. And I believe Tees Valley Wildlife Trust has supplies you with some really good information, Bob. They have, they have, yes, okay. yes. That we work closely with the, with the Wildlife Trust, and yeah. Uh, yeah, it's been it's been really good. I just while we're standing here, just take the opportunity to show you sort of down down the hill here. Mm -hmm. We're on what's called Pontac Road, okay. And just below us is is the New Mask Housing Estate. Yeah. But this was the main area where the tubs of iron ore left the woodland, ah, I see. went straight down. The road here on on downhill slope. Downhill, yeah. yep, and uh, across and joined up with the main gauge railway, which took all the iron ore off to the smelting and yeah. blast furnace and everything. Yeah, so this was the real hive of activity in, in this area. There was a winding house just here. I don't know if you can see the brickwork. Oh yeah, you can see the old brickwork through, through, still there, through yeah. there. And there were there was where there was a big drum with the cable wrapped mm -hmm. round, and that was pulling the iron ore tubs in and out. And yeah, it would have been really noisy. Yeah, yeah, there would have been a lot less trees in this area. There was blacksmith shops along just to, the, to uh -huh, our left here uh -huh. and uh, joiner's yeah. shop. Just just looking at a picture that I found in my book here and it's we met at the picnic area which is on the west side of the wood and what is now the picnic area used to be where the isolation hospital used to be and it was the smallpox mm. isolation hospital and people lived in there and it's just a corrugated building yeah corrugated roof mm -hmm. and uh, they lived people lived in there up until the 60s wow and there's so still it's like a residential home yeah them. and there's still there's still fruit trees in the picnic area damson trees from, yeah. from the original gardens that's where we ate the marshmallows wasn't it that's on the fire right, when far. we had yep. um, the country file team not, up here yeah yeah yeah, yeah you not, probably remember that listeners that must have been horrific wasn't it smallpox oh Shocking. I mean, we're yeah. going through strange times now, yeah, aren't we? Yeah. Just looking at a picture of two ladies inside of inside the... of the um, actual residential home for the smallpox, yeah. um, and they stood round the oven. I can imagine it being absolutely freezing oh, in the winter. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tilly lamp from the ceiling. Yeah. So there's no services. There. No, no services whatsoever. No. Probably would they have pumped water? Yeah, maybe. Possibly. Well, they must they have. They might yeah, have had pumped yeah, water in there. Unless they've provided water. Yeah. From just walking along with Keith I'm just saying that I am enjoying this walk it's wet and damp as I say but certainly the woodland does something for your your health and well-being absolutely and I think there's a lot of things something called forest bathing yeah and you come across that one and it's not no, like what it sounds yeah you just go out and just sit in a woodland you know you, yeah you don't take your clothes off or That's anything it. But no, it, you, no, know, but you just, just get there and just immerse yourself in a, in a woodland That's and you know there's just a power of trees I yeah think, you know. it is that's true and they have a lot of energy trees and the other day I was listening to a guy and he actually had a microphone on the tree trunk oh, yeah. and he was recording the sound of the water being sapped up the tree trunk wow. you know from the ground and that was very interesting so I've just stopped you here just to show you this well what is now a very insignificant holly tree that's 
growing tightly underneath the, the main canopy of the woodland. Mm. Uh, but it is quite significant because when I first started up here in 1985 as yeah. a countryside ranger, mm -hmm. I was introduced to an old chap called Harold Broughton, who was 91 at the time, and mm -hmm. he was an old ironstone miner. Oh, right. And he'd never been in the woodlands for yeah. about 30 years or something, so we bundled him into a Land Rover mm. and brought him up here. And I just said, if there's anything you can remember or what, mm. you know, just stop and let us, let us know, tell us the story. So yeah. we stopped here and he said, oh, there should be a holly tree here. Yeah. And I looked around looked and, and eventually found this holly tree. Yeah. And I said, well, it's nothing, it's not a good specimen of a holly tree. And he says, no. But he said in the mines, they used to have heavy horses, Clydesdale horses that they oh, used right. for pulling the tubs in early yeah. days. And uh, if the horses were lame or they were past their sell-by date, they used to sell them to the hunt kennels. <laughs> and they used the, to use get them the, put out and oh, feed the, feed feed the, the dogs. dogs. Yeah. But Mafekin had been mm. a really good horse and they all mm. liked Mafekin. So they brought Mafekin along here and dug a hole for Mafekin oh. and shot Mafekin and, and planted the holly tree oh. on top of Mafekin's So Mafekin is, is under that lot oh. somewhere. So it's all those nutrients are feeding the tree. All that goodness is going oh, absolutely. back yeah, yeah. into the canopy. That's yeah. brilliant. So we always used to tell the school kids this story and then yeah. say if you come up here on a dark night nice, and, yeah you, you know. might get the ghostly horse <laughs> <laughs> galloping round yeah, this is yeah. um, a really tall tree though isn't it would it's, it be about 12 meters or uh, yeah it's getting tall but, the, but we've got taller trees above it and it's yeah. all a competition for is the it? light yes yeah, and these trees are it. just reaching up and reaching up yeah. for, the, for the light and trying to get as high as they can yeah. unfortunately when they do that they get forced up but they they put a long long line on the tree, a long yeah. trunk, yeah. but they're not putting any girth on, no. and eventually so, they lose the so bottle and they just no, keel over. There's branches, but there's no leaves up to about nine metres on the mm. trunk. So there's just bare branches sticking out of a very straight tree trunk which is probably about two meters in diameter right. the tree trunk some of the it? conifers we have measured some of the conifers here yeah. and they, these were 18 meters tall Whether, so that might well, give, you a, give you an idea but yeah. i'm looking straight up above my head and there is a nest up there keith oh that could be a squirrel's dray it could be a squirrel's dray gray squirrel it's all bits and bits of sticks all tied together woven together quite strong isn't it, it around is. It um, is, yeah. one of the branches so yeah it could be yeah. a squirrel's drift that yeah. one yeah i hope listening today has refreshed your memory about the activities we enjoyed together last year when we walked out with all the trust volunteers who all engaged with the training to become competent sighted guides to keep you safe and we thank them for that I want to say a special thank you to Joe Dobbs, who has led the organisation of the wood management since he retired. Without his support, the Sensing the Wild Walks with people with sight loss would not have happened. And on behalf of GFI, Pam and the team, I wish him well in his retirement. Thank you to Keith for giving us such an historical insight into the woodland history. We all know so much more. Many of us identified with Jeff, the walker who gave us a fabulous social account of going to work in this area. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to it and comment. 
The next podcast will feature Ward Jackson Park in Hartlepool, a Victorian park with lots to offer visitors. We will be walking with our Hartlepool Vision Support Group, so listen out for it in late September. And from myself, Pam and the team, keep safe everyone. the sounds of nature if you do you might just fall in love with a new podcast series called sensing the wild this project funded by the heritage lottery fund is helping people with sight loss stay connected to our green spaces whilst at home and i'm joined now by lee nicholson project coordinator of sensing the wild podcast to find out what makes it so special thank you for joining me today lee Thank you for ringing me. So bringing the nature indoors, it's such a lovely idea. Yes, it is. Uh, We do a monthly podcast now for people with sight loss um, that are unfortunately still at home due to this horrible COVID situation. And we decided that to do a podcast was in response to the enjoyment people got from these walks that we were having during the different seasons, spring, summer, autumn, winter. And we had um, representatives from the Tees Valley Wildlife Trust as well, um, who were giving workshop talks. So we thought, well, we'll continue the walks in an auditory way, and we'll just connect people with nature again in their own homes. And is it difficult to produce this during lockdown? Well, but it is, and, you know, I'm being careful. So last week I was in one of the beautiful green spaces in Middlesbrough, which is, um, it's actually a cemetery, a very old cemetery, which has some very old trees and lots of nature in there. Um, So I talked to the volunteers that actually look after the cemetery, and we did do social distancing, and we did interviews as well with my mobile phone, um, but at a distance, and everything worked well. Um, so that that will be produced at the end of the month. And we've also done one in Darlington South Park too, uh, which was really, really nice because it was just when the lockdown was easing, so there was a lot more people in the park, and we were able to talk to people that were doing bowling, and then we were introducing people to the new birds in the aviary and down on the lake, um, talking about all the lovely geese that we've got down there and the volunteers in the park that look after the park um, joined in with it and there was also a lady who's a naturalist called Falsarka and she did us a lovely um, audio walk through the park mentioning all the beautiful um, pine trees and some of the more mature um, UK trees. And it's a really nice combination of audio because usually when you hear that it's a nature sort of podcast, you would expect, uh, I guess, a soundscape of the outdoors. But you have a lovely selection. You have all these conversations and you even have a virtual guided tour of the outdoors. So it's a very different experience. It is. And people are really enjoying that, especially engaging with other people um, in the natural space where we are. Um People are telling me, um, people with sight loss at home are telling me, it's like having the neighbours in the house. It's like company because they can hear people and it's a conversation and they're almost engaging with it. Um, And that seems to be benefiting people no end um, with regards to sort of social isolation and loneliness. 
Because that's a big issue right now, being obviously stuck at home, not being able to experience the things that you love. And it's just one of the ways that you can feel a bit more connected. Yes, that's right. We work in the red car in Cleveland area. The company I work for is called Going for Independence. Um, Pam Bennett is the um, MD. And it is a community interest company. And we applied for the Heritage Lottery Fund grant and our invested partners are Tees Valley Wildlife Trust. So we're working together um, on this project, getting people, as I say, out and about in, into nice green spaces, walking with trained sighted guides. Um, so I say that, that was a project and it was running very nicely from last July. And unfortunately that had to cease in March because of the COVID situation. So the podcast, is actually a best fit scenario now uh, until we can all get back together again. The groups that we work with is the Teesside and District Society for the Blind, uh, Focus on Vision in Stockton. We've got Darlington Social Club for the Blind as well and the Red Car Club for Blind People. So in those particular clubs, the Going for Independence team, they run art projects with people. So when they've actually been on the walks, and had the talks, they collect sort of small seeds and berries and leaves and corns and things like that, um, all collected in a bag. And then they do art projects around those items. So it's a real 360 degree experience, the sense in the wild. It's such a lovely initiative and obviously as you mentioned with uh, the lockdown and with current restrictions, having the podcast yeah. there is amazing. So how can we yeah. listen to the podcast? Well, it's on all major platforms now. I do the podcast through Anchor, uh, but you can get it on Google Podcasts and um, in Tuned In on Spotify as well. So those are the, the four major ones. And then there's other people that's joining the bandwagon now as well. And if I struggle with access to podcasts or internet, are there other ways for me to listen to it? Yes, um, we're currently trying to get some funding to get um, USB sticks and also CDs so we can record the podcast in another format uh, for people that don't have access to the IT and Wi-Fi. But most um, of the Daisy Player radios have a connection for a USB. Hopefully, um, we'll be able to get get that out to people very soon. And if I wanted to have uh, find more information about the project, is there a way for me to contact you? Yes, there is. Um, you can go to our website, which is called Going for Independence, and you'll be able to um, contact Pam Bennett there, who is the managing director. Lee Nicholson, Project Coordinator of Sensing the Wild podcast. Thank you for sharing the magic of the outdoors with RNIB Connect Radio. Thank you very much for having me today.